Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Would you take your Bible now and go to John chapter 4? I'll be reading from John 4, verses 26 through 42 in just a moment. Back before I was married in my graduate school days, my seminary friends and I decided that before all the, the crazy ruckus of finals week took place, that we were going to take a break from it all. And so we had an undergrad professor that was a mentor to us who had a lake house. And he gave us an opportunity to kind of spend a whole day on the lake doing all the great things you get to do on a lake, like take out the jet skis and chill out on a pontoon boat and try to water ski. Now, the word try is the operative word. I'd never water skied before, but I really, really wanted to try. And so we get out there on the lake. The, the gentleman who owns the, the jet ski boat is out there getting ready to go. My buddy Jeremy is the first one to go. Now, it was very obvious that Jeremy had done this before. He put on the water skis. He grabbed the tow rope. The boat takes off. In a matter of seconds, Jeremy is up on the water, flying at like 60 miles per hour, doing the behind the back, the one ski up in the air. And then it's my turn. Why are you laughing? Have you heard this illustration before? I grabbed the same rope. I put the same skis on these size 13s. I, I, I had as much hope and excitement as Jeremy had, but the boat takes off, no dice. I tried again and again and again, no matter how hard I tried. I could not get up out of the water. So Jeremy's over in the pontoon boat yelling over to me, try this, try that. I'm like, thanks a lot. I've never tried again. That was 20 years ago. Maybe that experience is similar to your experience as one who's been sent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to introduce others to Jesus. You want to be a faith, you want to be faithful in evangelism. You want to introduce the lost and the needy all around you to the Savior who has set you free, but you've never seemed to be able to get your evangelistic life up off the ground. And you've tried and you've tried, you've gotten hints, you've, you've even seen others do it well and you've learned from their example, but it just doesn't seem to be going the way you thought it should. I got good news for you. You're not alone. And Jesus wants to help us. In the text that we're about to look at this morning, John 4, 27 through 42. If you're not familiar with the whole story of John 4, this is what's traditionally referred to as Jesus and the woman at the well. Jesus and the 12 disciples have just left Judea and they're on their way back to Galilee. And in order to get back to Galilee, they have to pass through Samaria. Now, Jews usually avoided passing through Samaria because if you've been a follower of Jesus long and you've read your Bible, you understand that Samaritans and Jews have a long-standing racial and religious tension among themselves. In the text we're going to read earlier on, verse 9 says it succinctly that Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. But what you find Jesus doing all throughout the Gospels is he, he kind of just walks through these social barriers. Why? Because they're unjust. And because he is not only the Savior of the Jews, he is the Savior of the world. 
So when they get to the Samaritan town of Sychar, what we find here in our story is that Jesus is tired and the disciples are hungry. And so Jesus finds a place to sit and relax by the town watering hole while the disciples go to Wawa to get some hoagies. And it's during this time, while the disciples are getting their lunch, that Jesus begins a conversation with a very needy Samaritan woman. I mean, her life is the stuff of tabloids. Divorced and remarried five times, and right now she's presently living with her boyfriend. That stat alone just pushes her to the margins of society. I mean, suffice it to say, she's not exactly the first person you think about having over for potluck dinner. She's probably the woman that every wife warned her husband, stay away from her. And here's Jesus sitting alone with her at this well, telling her things that only God could know and making her promises that only God could keep. She comes to this well, a dry, broken, shame-filled soul, but she leaves renewed, redeemed, refreshed, and eager to tell everyone she can what she encountered with Jesus. And before we go any further and actually get into the topic at hand, let me just put this out here. Today, we're here to encounter Jesus. And if you come today a dry, broken, shame-filled soul, then I got good news for you. You can leave today refreshed, renewed, redeemed, because the Savior we are going to consider this morning that invited this woman to the well of his mercy also invites us. And I hope today, before we depart from this gathering, you would receive refreshment at the well of Christ's mercy. So this is all that has taken place before the disciples return. And Jesus begins to teach them and teach us what it means to hunger for more and more people like this woman to encounter the life-transforming mercy of the Savior. Jesus wants you to know. Jesus wants us all to know that there are women like this all over your county. There are men just as broken like this, neighbors and friends and co-workers and classmates like this woman who are desperate to encounter the mercy of Jesus Christ and that they are ripe for entering the kingdom of God. With that in view, let us read John chapter 4, verse 27 through 42. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Just then, his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. 
So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored. And you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. That is the word of God. May God add his blessing to its reading and its preaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Look at verse 34. Jesus says to his disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, Jesus is obviously using food here in a metaphorical sense. He's saying that just like food gives you energy and just like food brings you satisfaction, Jesus says doing the work. The father sent him to do in order to gather a harvest of souls for the eternal kingdom, provides him with a greater energy and brings him a greater satisfaction than ordinary food. Jesus is saying this because he wants his disciples to join him in hungering for that harvest. Jesus wants his disciples to join him in finding their energy and receiving satisfaction in the food of mission. He's laying this teaching out because he wants all of his disciples, which would include you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus wants you to join him in hungering for the harvest. Jesus wants you to join him in finding your energy and your satisfaction in gathering souls into his eternal kingdom. That's really the big idea of this part of the text, and this is the big idea of this sermon. Jesus wants you to join him in hungering for the harvest of Lancaster County. Jesus wants you to join him in longing for more and more neighbors and friends and family members and co-workers like this woman to turn from idols to the living God. So if you're like me, you might say something like this. Yeah, I'm, I'm hungry for that, but well, I, I long for that, but... Maybe, maybe if I'm honest, I, I couldn't quite describe that as a hunger. But I'm hungry to be hungry. So here's my question this morning. How? How do we position ourselves to increase our hunger 
for the harvest. How? How do we increase our hunger for the harvest? Jesus in this text obviously wants his 12 disciples to hunger for the harvest like him. And by implication and by the virtue of the fact that this scripture has been preserved for us, delivered to us, and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, because this text is for us, we can also say by implication that Jesus wants us to hunger like this as well. So how? How do we grow in our hunger for the harvest? As we look at John 4, 27 to 42, I want, to cons- I want us to consider that increasing our hunger for the harvest involves at least three activities of the heart. And let me give you all three up front, because I know there's a clock. I don't even know when I started. That's probably a problem. But let me give you all three. And if the trap door opens up, at least you have the three main points. Here they are. If you want your hunger for the harvest to increase, it involves three activities of the heart. First, renewing your affections, verses 27 through 30. Reorienting your values, that's verses 31 through 34. And then recognizing your opportunities, verses 35 through 42. So first, renewing our affections. And here's the idea behind this first main division. Your hunger for the harvest will increase as your affections for Jesus increase. Your hunger for the harvest will increase as your affections for Jesus increase. This woman has just encountered Jesus. And as she describes with her own words, her heart is absolutely blown away. And that, that, that blown away amazement is captured in verse 28. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now there's obviously some exaggeration here. All that I ever did. Did we read that? No. But as is the case with amazement, amazement usually leads to exaggeration. It's like Gandalf said to Bilbo, every good story has its fair share of embellishment, right? When something amazing happens, when we eat something, we're like, this is the best food ever. Or we see a movie that we really enjoy. That was the best movie ever. Really? Hyperbole. Exaggeration. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Here's the point. She's amazed by her encounter with Jesus. She's amazed because Jesus knew the depths of her heart. Jesus knew her sin-stained past. Jesus knew her past and present moral failures. Jesus knew that she was looking for love in all the wrong places. Jesus knew the ins and outs of her sin. And ready? He didn't walk away. He loves her. And he invites her to the well of his mercy. She's here getting water when no one else is usually there. Why? Because she is used to people rejecting her. I'm sure, I mean, one would say, well, she made her bed, now she needs to lie in it. She's experiencing the consequences of her sin. Sin always has consequences. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your 
consequences. And she's dealing with the harsh social realities of her sinful choices. But she's used to people pushing her away because of this. And she's just kind of accepted this. And so she's expecting Jesus to walk away. But she doesn't encounter that. Jesus stays. And he calls her to turn away from her sexual and relational idolatry and turn to the true and living God and become a true worshiper. Jesus gives her forgiveness. Jesus gives her a new life. Jesus gives her what she, what, what he has given to every other undeserving sinner in this room. Grace. The mercy of Jesus, the grace of Christ has so captured her heart, has so overwhelmed her. Don't miss the connection. She wants others to encounter it too. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? What's the point? The more we live in the awareness of the grace we received from Jesus, the more we will want others to encounter that grace. The more we are aware that Jesus knows the depths of our sin-stained past, the more that we are aware that Jesus knows every single one of our moral failures, the more we are aware that Jesus is aware of all of our idolatrous longings, the more we are aware that Jesus knows all of that about us, all the skeletons in our closet, and yet has forgiven us and accepts us by grace, the more we will want others to know that same grace. the more we are amazed by Christ, the more we will want others to encounter Christ. So let me ask you, are you still amazed? Have you possibly lost your wonder? Have you gotten over the fact that every single one of your sins have been forgiven. Have you forgotten the significance of what we're all about to participate in at the end of our gathering today? That we who deserve the banishment of God, we who deserve the judgment of God, have been invited to the table of his love, mercy, and grace. Oh, it was a well for this woman. But every single time we remember the Lord at this table, we recall that we have been asked, we have been invited, we have been provided for to have a seat at the table of God. Because we deserve it? No. But because he is so gracious. Have you forgotten? Have you lost the wonder that you who deserve God's wrath, have been shown God's endless mercy in Christ. I ask this in an attempt to be a faithful pastor because the more we are amazed by Jesus, the more we want others to encounter him. But the opposite is true the less we are amazed, the more common the gospel becomes to us, the less eager we are to introduce others to the Christ 
who knows everything about our hearts and still loves us regardless. Your hunger for the harvest will increase as your affections for Jesus increase. So ask yourself, has there been a time in your life when your affections for Jesus have been more acute? And I would encourage you as a, as, as a faithful disciple of Jesus to spend some time asking yourself some questions and getting some friends and those closest to you to help you discern what possibly has contributed to decreased affections for Christ. And then I would offer you this very, very important practical suggestion of what to do on the other side of that. In fact, I'll do it for us all at the end of this gathering. Pray. Pray for affections for Christ. Pray for increased affections for Jesus. Pray prayers like Paul taught us to pray in Ephesians chapter 3, that the Father would pour out the Spirit, that our hearts would explode and expand in understanding the height and the depth and the width and the length of the love of Christ, that we might be filled with the fullness of God. And I am convinced as we are increasingly filled with the fullness of God, as we are increasingly aware of the love of Christ, oh, oh, we will not be able to contain the enthusiasm to share Christ with others. If we are going to increase our hunger for the harvest, it it begins with renewed affections for Jesus. Notice second in Christ's lesson to these disciples that if we're going to have an increased hunger for the harvest, it not only involves renewing our affections, it also involves reorienting our values. So here's the idea here under this main heading. Your hunger for the harvest will increase as the priority of harvest work increases. Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So, so here's classic. Here are the classic disciples, right? Jesus is obviously trying to teach them a spiritual lesson. And they say, oh, did you already have a hoagie? <laughs> no. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Well, let, let's, let's take a moment to be really vulnerable and transparent. See, answer this question for me. Isn't food amazing? <laughs> Isn't food amazing? I love food. Aren't you glad that we don't just have to eat food for energy, that we can eat food also for satisfaction and delight? I love food. Listen, if you want to go quantity, then do Shady Maple. But if you want quality, come hang out with me in Philadelphia, okay? All right? Now, I don't want to totally knock Lancaster County. I love Lebanon Bologna. Oh, wait, that's Lebanon. But I love, I love so much about Lancaster County. I, I enjoy going to Shady Maple. I mean, it's like the Disney World of food, okay? But if you want to sink your teeth into some culinary masterpieces, okay? Come hang out in Philadelphia. We have the best sandwiches in the world. Yes. That is an exaggeration. Okay. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, the cheesesteak. I've heard of the cheesesteak. Yeah, I've had the cheesesteak. You're, clo- you're close to Philly. You know, you, you've had some good cheesesteaks. In fact, there's probably a place around here that, that tries to imitate the glory that we experience on a regular basis within the city limits of Philadelphia. But I want to, I want to just give you a hint. I mean, you, you, 
you don't need to pay me for this. I'm not getting paid to advertise this. But if you want to eat one of the most amazing sandwiches in Philadelphia, I, in, I invite you to go to the Reading Terminal at 13th and Filbert and, and enjoy a Denix roast pork sandwich with broccoli rabe and sharp provolone cheese. Should I close in prayer? Do you want to go now? <laughs> food is amazing. I love food. You love food. We love food. Food is good. But there's a place where Jesus found greater satisfaction. Food is good. Food is amazing. But there was a greater food that Jesus valued. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, where Jesus is going with this statement is that he's letting us into his value system in a very practical way. More than anything, Jesus valued doing the work of the Father. More than anything, Jesus valued embracing his responsibility as a sent one. More than anything, Jesus wants to help broken people find their way into the kingdom of God. And when faced with a decision between two good things, Jesus will sacrifice the less valuable for the more valuable. When faced with a decision... Jesus is willing to sacrifice the less valuable for the more valuable. Eat lunch, help this woman get into the kingdom of God. No brainer what gives me more energy and more satisfaction. Jesus was willing in moments of decision between two good things to sacrifice the less valuable for the more valuable. In other words, Jesus was willing to sacrifice a good thing for a better thing. He sacrificed his lunch for the harvest. Now, this is just a small sacrifice compared to his greatest sacrifice when he would experience betrayal and arrest and false accusations and eventually be be sentenced to die crucifixion by crucifixion on the cross. There is nothing compared to that sacrifice. That was his greatest sacrifice. And that is the reason why we are here today. We thank Jesus for choosing to go to the cross. Amen? We will never be called to make that sacrifice. That is a unique sacrifice that only Christ would make and only Christ could make. However... Jesus is letting us in on the sacrificial nature of the kingdom through this decision in a way that invites us to make sacrifices like this. Although we will never be called the sacrifice like Jesus sacrificed on the cross, here Jesus is giving us a picture of a kind of sacrifice that we enter into. See, Jesus valued saving sinners more than filling his belly, even though filling his belly wasn't wrong. Jesus valued helping this woman find living water more than drinking physical water. I I, I find this so ironic, is that Jesus, at the very beginning of this passage, it says that he was thirsty. And by the time we get to the end of this story, he still hasn't gotten a drink of water. Jesus valued mission more than sticking to his schedule. Because he had planned to go to Galilee, but he stays here in Sychar for two extra days. See, Jesus valued the mission more than food. Jesus valued the mission more than water. Jesus valued the mission more than sticking to his schedule. These are the kind of sacrifices 
that we are often called to make as we participate in the mission of the gospel. Jesus valued the work of mission more than a meal, more than sticking to his schedule. Jesus valued the work of mission more than other permissible pleasures and was willing to make sacrifices in order to bring in the harvest. So, here's the big application point. Hungering for the harvest requires sacrifice. What needs to be sacrificed in our lives in order to have more time, more resources, to be flexible and open to harvest opportunities? And this often presents itself in, in, in unplanned, unique ways. That if we don't have this value operating in our hearts, then we don't normally follow through on them. For example, you're at work and you're in the break room. And there was this amazing book that Pete recommended in one of his sermons. And you finally got it on Amazon. And you're about to sit down, crack open that book and eat your lunch. And you notice across the break room that one of your coworkers can't even eat their lunch because they're crying. And you're faced with a decision. Book, tears. That's a moment to reorient your values. This book is a good thing. That ham sandwich, praise God, New Covenant, ham sandwich is a great thing. Good thing. But offering the peace and comfort of Christ to a hurting co-worker, a better thing. You're finally sitting down to dinner. It's been a busy day. And with the family, doorbell rings. Bong, bong. Open the door. It's your neighbor. And I got some terrible news to share with you. What? My dog died. You're like, really? <laughs> but you don't verbalize that because you know that your neighbor, they have no kids. They haven't been able to have kids. And their dogs, they kind of treat them like they're kids. If you do that, you're weird, but I love you, okay? <laughs> and for that neighbor taking some time to console them in their loss is a big deal and provides space to talk about what matters most. Jesus. You see, very often in our lives, if we're going to take opportunities, take the opportunities that God provides for us to speak up for Jesus and to share the gospel and to, to serve and love in Jesus' name, it's often going to require that we're willing to have our schedules and our lives interrupted. It may mean that we need to do a little less of this so we can do a little more mission. Sacrifice. What will motivate us to be willing to make those kinds of sacrifices? Well, notice what it was for Jesus. Jesus says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus' willingness The sacrifice for the sake of mission was fueled by a sense of responsibility. This is what the Father sent him for. This was the will of the Father, that he would leave heaven and come to earth and seek and save the lost. Jesus' willingness to say no to a sandwich in order to help this woman understand her need of grace, was motivated by a sense of responsibility. This is what I'm here for. This 
is what the Father sent me to do. His work. The same must be true for us. If we're going to say no to less valuable things in order to say yes to more valuable things, like telling people about Jesus and healing what's broken in our community, then it must be fueled by a sense of responsibility. Later on in this gospel, Jesus says to his disciples, as the Father sent me, now I am what? Sending you. Church, we have been sent. As the Father sent Jesus to do what we're reading about in this text, the Father, the Father sent Jesus and gave him that work to do. Now Jesus, in turn, has said to us, go and make disciples of the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And don't worry, I'm with you to the end of the age. Go. I'm sending you. I'm sending my rescued ones to be the means through which I gather other rescued ones. Church, it is our responsibility to be the means through which Christ gathers the harvest that he has lived and died and rose from the dead to secure. Valuing the work of mission begins by embracing our responsibility as sent ones. You know this, right? You live where you live. You work where you work. You go to school where you go to school. You do life where you do life. Not by accident. Not just because you got a great deal in the house or the job opportunity opened up or the school accepted you. You live where you live. You work where you work. You do life where you do life. Here's why. Jesus has sent you. You are just as sent as you are forgiven. You are just as sent as you are justified. You're just as sent as you are reconciled. You're just as sent as you are redeemed. Part of our gospel identity as disciples of Christ is we are his sent ones. Intentionally planted where we live, where we work, where we do life to represent him and to have the responsibility of speaking up for him and being the means through which he gathers his people and builds his kingdom. We will never make these sacrifices if we simply compare what's more satisfying, what's more energizing. That's part of it. But what will motivate us to make these sacrifices less valuable things for more valuable things is an awareness. This is what we've been sent for. It's our responsibility. Your hunger for the harvest will increase as your valuing of the harvest work increases. Finally, if your hunger for the harvest is going to increase, it not only involves renewing your affections, reorienting your values, finally notice that it involves recognizing your opportunities. Your hunger for the harvest will increase as your awareness of reaping opportunities increase. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Do not think reaping is down the line. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are already ripe for harvesting. 
See, as Jesus is explaining this to his disciples, uh, they're beginning to be approached by a crowd of people who are coming to find out more about Jesus because of this woman, so overwhelmed by what she encountered with Christ, went back to her village and told them about him. So continuing with the agricultural metaphor, Jesus points out our tendency to think that opportunities to see people come into the kingdom of God, to see people converted, are always down the line and never right before us. But Jesus says the harvest is ready to be reaped right here, right now. Most scholars believe that this event is taking place around December because Jesus says in verse 35 that you're thinking that harvest is four months away. And that would be true agriculturally. But spiritually, Jesus says, you think you have to wait for the harvest? I'm telling you, look, right now, it's harvest time. And this is what Christ says to us. We've been sharing the gospel. We've been waiting. We've been investing. And we think that the opportunities to reap harvest for the kingdom of God are way down the line. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Harvest time is now. There are always people who are ripe for entering the kingdom of God. The principle is that it's always harvest time. And here's why. Because God is always up to something in the lives of the people all around you. Even before we interact with people, God is at work. It's not our job to start the work. Here is what I call a missional myth. Things won't happen until we get them started. That is a myth. Things are already happening. God is already at work in people's lives. The gospels are been planted in so many people all around you. And it is our responsibility to discern what God is already up to and how he's inviting us into that work, sometimes as a continued sower, but very often as a reaper. Jesus says, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. What this means is so encouraging and so faith-building for mission. God is already at work in the people all around you. He has been sowing into their lives through other people, through other circumstances, and through other experiences. And very often, we don't recognize it until we begin to engage with these folks and realize, whoa, God prepared this moment. See, God is using you. This means two things, and I think it's very amazing. First, it means that God is using you to sow the gospel in the people's lives right now, and others will come along later and reap from that sowing. It also means that God is using other people to sow into the lives of other people all around you, and he's setting you up for the reaping opportunity. He's, you're entering into a labor You're entering into a field where others have labored. And it's not about the part. It's not about the actual part that we play. It's that we have a part to play. Sowing or reaping. I'm reminded of this amazing reality every single fall. Um, I grew up in the concrete pastures of area code 215 Philadelphia. So I'm a city guy through and through. But my wife, on the other hand, she grew up in central New Jersey and spent part of her life up in Hartford, Connecticut. And her family grew up on a potato farm in Maine. And so, like, she's got this whole agricultural thing going on, okay? And so her father, even though he lives in Jersey now, he still has the green thumb. He has, like, this little cool mini apple orchard. 
And he, he, he's planted those trees himself. He nurses those trees. He, he, he does all the things you're supposed to say that I don't know about because I'm not one of those guys. Um, he does all that. But here's what I get to do. Every single October, my family's invited to come and spend a day at my father-in-law's house and pick the apples. I didn't plant. I didn't fertilize. I didn't shoo off the deer and the birds and put the nets up. I didn't do any of that stuff. But here I am with my wife and my sons and my daughters, and we're reaping fruit. And we didn't labor in the sowing. We have the joy of enjoying something that someone else has labored so hard to produce. And here's what Jesus, Jesus is getting at here. Whether you continue to sow, whether you fertilize, whether you water, whether you reap, we are all being called to labor into a field that we have not made possible for production. It's Jesus. Jesus has made this harvest possible. Jesus has secured this harvest through his life, his death, his resurrection. Jesus has created this context of harvesting. Jesus has made a way for us to enter into this labor and help bring in the harvest of souls that one day we get a picture of what it will be like. There will be this great innumerable multitude from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation who've been harvested, secured by Jesus, and will say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. We're not the reason why they're there, but we have a part to play in introducing them to the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to get there. We have been sent to recognize the harvest opportunities all around us, and we all have a part to play, to reap in a field that we have not sown. Are you hungry? Are you hungry for this? Don't you want to see more and more men and women, young and old, from all different walks of life and ethnicities and religious backgrounds, turning from their sin and putting their hope and trust in Jesus Christ? Are you hungry for that? Do you want to see the family grow, the kingdom expand, the church multiply? I know you do. If you're a follower of Jesus, there's something in you that longs for that. Well, Jesus wants us to long for that and to long for it more. And here in this text, we are told, we are instructed how to grow in our hunger for that. Church, be amazed by Jesus. The more you are amazed by Christ, the more you'll want others to encounter Christ. Church, Value the work of the kingdom more than the work of building your own little kingdom and be willing to make every necessary sacrifice of good things for the better thing of living your life to make Jesus known. And may your eyes be open, recognizing all around you, the men and the women that God has already begun to do a work in. And that you are being called, being given the responsibility to not only reap, but sometimes just sow a little bit more and someday, someone else, someday later, will have the joy of seeing that individual enter into the kingdom of God. Whether we sow in tears or reap in joy, what a privilege to join Jesus 
in the harvest. Amen. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.